in 2017, so a couple years ago, uh, a guy that lived here in Michigan, I'm going to see if I can get his name right, Ledura Watkins. You wouldn't know if that wasn't right, probably, so <laughs> we'll, we'll go with that. Uh, Ledura Watkins walked out of, a, of the Wayne County Jail in Detroit after 41 years in prison for a 1975 murder. And here's the thing about his release that's crazy. He didn't commit the murder. He's innocent. He'd been convicted in 1975 based on a single hair of evidence that was found at the crime scene that had been analyzed using a faulty technique. And there was a witness who said that he had committed the murder with Watkins, who later, before the trial, said, actually, I lied about it. I wasn't really there with him. He didn't do it. And that report that would have discredited the lying witness was never passed on to Watkins' defense team, which was illegal to not give them that information. So based on a series of lies and bad evidence, that guy goes to prison for 41 years. It's the longest exoneration after incarceration, uh, unjust incarceration in U.S. history, 41 years. He went for a crime he didn't commit. Now, I see some of your faces, and I think they reflect what goes on in my stomach when I hear that. I just, oh, man, I just can't fathom having that experience and having that happen. My stomach turns when I hear stuff like that, the injustice of that. 41 birthdays, 41 Christmases, missed out on his kids. You know, he's in his 20s when he goes in and his 60s when he gets out. It's horrifying. And we're made in the image of God, and so there is a sense and a desire for justice that we have. And so when we hear something like that, it, it tends to horrify us and turn our stomachs. We don't want to see an innocent person suffer in that way. This morning, we're going to watch a scene unfold that is the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the world. And it's found in Mark chapter 15, so you can turn there. If you get uncomfortable thinking about Watkins being incarcerated for 41 years before getting exonerated, the injustice of that, then this scene should impact you in a deeper way this morning. Why? Well, because this injustice is done to a man who is completely innocent of any wrongdoing ever in his life, and this scene of injustice is our fault. This happens because of us. This is our doing, what we're going to read this morning. We're responsible for this. He doesn't deserve to die, and we don't deserve to live. Yet, Mark 10 and verse 45 is true, and it informs our reading of this. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this morning, we're going to handle this passage just a little bit differently than we typically do when we approach a text. I'm going to give you a one-sentence summary of this passage to hold our thoughts together, sort of a, a peg to hang our hat on, and I'll leave that on the screen while we're walking through the passage, and I'm telling you the story, and we're reading through it, and then we'll return to this one-sentence summary after we go through the passage, and you see it unfolded, and we'll go back to it, and we'll make some application for our lives. So a bit different than we typically do, 
But here's what this passage is teaching this morning. Jesus, the innocent king, was unjustly condemned to die so we could go free. It's a pretty simple statement, but there's, there's quite a bit of dramatic significance that's there. So if you want to jot that down, that's fine. If not, it'll be on the screen while we go through this text, and we'll come back to it. So if you're following along with us, last time we saw Jesus in one trial of a sense before the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night. They capture him in the garden, they take him to the house of the high priest, and he is tried before the high priest there while Peter is outside in the courtyard being questioned by servants and soldiers. And we saw the two different reactions that happened to those two different trials there. But as Peter is denying Jesus, a rooster crows twice, which would have been pretty typical, but a rooster crows crows twice, and we know that morning is approaching. And so Jesus' trial wraps up in the house of the high priest, and they're taunting him and slapping him and telling him to prophesy, and Peter's denying the Lord, and the rooster's crowing, and so we know morning is approaching, and all of this is going to wrap up here. So look at the first part of chapter 15. And verse 1, and as soon as it was morning, so following right on the heels of chapter 14, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. Now, this isn't a different trial that's happening here. This is the culmination of their questioning of Jesus. Remember, they were looking for a charge for him because they wanted to kill him. Well, they've come up with their charge, and now they're deciding how to proceed and how to move forward. So keep in mind here that they have decided that he's worthy of death. They found the charge of blasphemy and accused him of that, but the Jewish leadership cannot put him to death. Otherwise, they would have taken him out already and stoned him, and that would have been the end of it. But they can't carry out capital punishment. They need the Roman governor and the authority of Rome to be able to carry out capital punishment because they're under the occupation of Rome at this time, so they're responsible to them. So these guys, the Sanhedrin, this council of Jewish religious leaders, 70 people, they know they need Rome's involvement here. And so this consultation is them getting together and most likely going, okay, how do we translate the charge of blasphemy to the Roman governor so that the Roman governor will decide this guy is worthy of death? Because if you're Pilate, and the Jews are having a religious squabble about blasphemy, you don't care about that. It doesn't matter to you what this guy says about God. You don't even believe in God necessarily, so you don't really care. It's not a capital crime for someone to commit blasphemy according to Rome. And so they have to work on what crime they'll charge Jesus with before the Romans and how they're going to get Pilate on board with this whole thing. So that's what this consultation is about. Look at the rest of verse 1. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So they're treating him like a criminal now. They bind him up and they take him to Pilate with an official charge. Now, Pilate is the Roman prefect or the Roman governor. We know his name, right? Everybody knows his name. I find it interesting that in the Apostles' Creed, which is the earliest sort of summary of Christian doctrine, that there are only two people mentioned outside of the Trinity, the members of the Trinity. One is Mary, the mother of Jesus, and one is Pilate, who's mentioned. So he plays a significant role in the death of Jesus, obviously, but he's the Roman governor at this time. Who was he? 
Well, we don't know a ton about him, but we do have some information about him. He's certainly spoken of several times in Scripture, and it would be helpful just to get a little bit of a picture of who he is so you can understand the interaction that takes place here with the Jewish leadership and with the crowd, because it's not really all that straightforward in some ways. He was the Roman provincial government governor from AD 26 to AD 30, so about 11 years, and that was the longest tenure that one of these guys had, because Judea was a pretty difficult place to be in charge, to be the governor. Um, what happened was the Roman Empire controlled this huge empire of land and area, and then they would put governors in charge of the different provinces. And Pilate was the governor in charge of Judea at this time. Now, Judea was particularly volatile because you had a lot of, uh, I'm going to use a word and don't think of it the same way we use it today, nationalism. Um, you had a lot of nationalistic fervor for the Jewish people because this was their land and God had promised it to them. And so Pilate had all kinds of tense run-ins with the Jewish leadership. Um, he would provoke them by bringing images of the emperor into Jerusalem, and people would get mad, and just all kinds of crazy stuff happened. And so he was constantly having conflict with the Jews and with the Jewish leadership. But he was a pretty competent ruler. That's why he lasted that long. And he had no particularly warm feelings for the Jewish leadership. And in fact, any opportunity he could get to sort of get under their skin and annoy them, he would take advantage of that if he could. But he's a politician. And so you could count on Pilate to do whatever was most politically expedient at that particular time in a given situation. And so that's really helpful to understand who he is a little bit and how he approaches this. Now, normally, Pilate would have lived in Caesarea, which was about 70 miles away from Jerusalem. So he wasn't always in Jerusalem, but he just happened to be in Jerusalem at this time because during the festivals, during Passover, the city was particularly volatile. Uprisings could take place, riots could take place, and so he had to come down with his Roman guard, and he had to be in the city to help maintain order. Certainly during that time, you can't maintain order from 70 miles away. You have to be there with your soldiers, and so that's what he was doing. So he was staying in a small palace, probably on a hillside near Jerusalem. They knew exactly where he was. And so the Sanhedrin take Jesus over there because they know they need Pilate on board if they're going to have Jesus crucified, have him killed. And so they bring Jesus to Pilate, and no doubt as they deliver him over to Pilate, they would have explained why they were bringing him and what the particular charges were that they were accusing Jesus of. And so it's based on what they told him, those charges, that you get Pilate's question to Jesus in verse 2. Look down there. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? So this question in our Bibles, it's, it's a, framed like a question, but as Pilate asked it, it actually would have been framed like a statement with the enunciation making it a question. So here's how you should actually read this. You are the king of the Jews? That's what he says here. You are the king of the Jews? And this is interesting because the high priest had asked Jesus if he was the Messiah, which was basically the same thing, and Jesus had answered yes to him. And so now it appears what has happened is the Sanhedrin have taken that affirmative answer as the Messiah, the king of the Jews, and they've, they've spun this 
or given it to Pilate as a claim to political authority. So they're saying this guy is claiming to be a political authority within Israel. And so they're putting the political aspects of this front and center because they know that you can't claim to be a political authority to the Romans without getting yourself in quite a bit of trouble. It was not a crime to Rome to claim to be the Messiah per se, but if you're starting to bump up against Caesar's authority, that is a crime, and that's something to be concerned about, a problem there. But make sure you read Jesus's answer correctly here. Look how he answers. And he answered him, you have said so, with the emphasis on you. You said it. (laughs) So he's not affirming it per se, but he's definitely not denying it. He's saying, you're the one who said it, because he's not interested in getting into a discussion here. Pretty much a non-answer. If Jesus would have answered in the affirmative here, like he did before the high priest, if he would have said, yes, I am the king of the Jews, and you'll see me coming, you know, like he did before the high priest in the clouds of heaven, there would have been an immediate pronouncement of death. There's no way you could say that to him here. But his answer isn't clear, so the chief priests continue to accuse him. Look at verse 3. And the chief priest accused him of many things. They're trying to pin everything they can on him. Pilate's no friend to the Sanhedrin, but he probably would like to stick it to them in any way that he could. And so if Jesus has a defense against these accusations, Pilate wants to hear it. Look at verse 4. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus isn't defending himself. Look at verse 5. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. His reaction is interesting here. He's amazed at this. He's, he's shocked. He's like, listen, if you, you can get off here. I don't want to turn you over to these guys. I don't necessarily even think you've done anything wrong, I think was his understanding of the situation. But he's marveling, and there's a hint of admiration here. There's all these accusations being hurled at Jesus by the chief priest and the the high priest, the authorities, the Sanhedrin here, and Pilate is just shocked and amazed and even admiring Jesus that he won't respond. What a unique situation to be in. He's not used to people just accepting false accusations without replying to them and trying to defend themselves. So the contrast between the the chief priest's angry accusations and Jesus's stoic silence here and failing to defend himself is It's amazing to Pilate. Now, one of the things that's interesting to do here is if you go and look at this story in the Gospel of Luke, which you should do as you're reading through this, the Gospel of Luke actually has a huge interlude in between verses 5 and 6. So in the Gospel of Mark here, we go right into the next section dealing with Pilate, but in the Gospel of Luke, they actually, Pilate sends Jesus to Herod at this point. And there's a whole interaction with Herod there. And it even says that Pilate and Herod became friends after this because Herod had been interested in meeting Jesus. And so there's this whole interaction there that Mark doesn't discuss at all. He sort of of just rolls into the next section with Pilate here. Why does he do that? I think Mark streamlines this to keep our attention focused on the sense of injustice that we should feel over what's happening to Jesus here. 
He wants us to focus in one direction in this whole trial and the condemnation of Jesus. And so he continues from the silence of Jesus in the face of these accusations to an opportunity for Jesus to be released. Look at verse 6. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. So I'm sure you've heard of this tradition before. This was something that the Roman governor didn't have to do. It was not required of him to do this. But the Roman governor, Pilate in this case, he had sole authority to condemn someone or to release someone. This guy calls the shots. He made the decision, and whatever he wanted to do would go. And so he had developed this practice at festival times of releasing a prisoner that the people wanted released. It's a way to gain political points, you know, try to garner good favor with the people. And so he did this on a regular basis, it looks like. And Jesus isn't the only one being held at this point. Look at verse 7. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Now, needless to say, Barabbas is not a nice guy when you read about him here. We've mentioned before the political situation in Israel at this time, but there were Jews who passionately wanted the foreign invaders of Rome to be gone from the land. And they wanted to be the ones who were responsible for the land and ruling over themselves again. That's what they wanted. And they, there were certain people that were willing to use violence to try to bring that about. They wanted to do whatever it took. They were called zealots or insurrectionists. Barabbas is one of these guys. And it's interesting here that he is, we get his name. He's not just called another rebel in prison. We actually get his name in this account. So he's probably not just your common foot soldier in the insurrection against Rome. He's probably a pretty prominent leader. He's a well-known guy. And chances are that he has a following. He has a lot of people who are interested in his being released. And a lot of people who follow him and his movement, his revolutionary movement. So keep that tradition in mind of releasing someone in the situation with Barabbas here as we get to verse 8. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. Now, here's a new character on the scene, the crowd. Of course, you've seen the crowd over and over again, different crowds in the Gospel of Mark. But here we have a crowd. Now, think about the situation here. It is very early in the morning on Friday morning, maybe even 6 o'clock, maybe even earlier, depending on when it got light. It's very early in the morning, right at daybreak. So why is there a crowd hanging around Pilate's residence in Jerusalem at this time of the morning? What are these people doing there? Well, there's a couple of options, and we don't really know what's true, but I'll throw these out there to try to help fill out the picture here. They may have been expecting Pilate to release one of the prisoners at this time, as he normally did, and so they were there to do exactly what they do, which is to ask for Barabbas to be released, to get him out of there. They may have been gathered quickly by the Sanhedrin. They may have called in their cronies to be outside of of Pilate's palace in order to do exactly what they do here, which is to convince Pilate to release Barabbas instead of Jesus, so that Jesus is seen as a criminal worthy of death. We don't know, but the crowd does play a significant role in the story, as you know. 
So Pilate here, we've gotten the sense that he's already not really crazy about the accusations being thrown out against Jesus. And so he sees this as an opportunity to try to get Jesus out of there. Verse 9, and he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And there's an explanation as to why he asked this in verse 10. For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. So he's not a big fan of the chief priests. So if he can let the crowd choose who they're going to release, and if they will choose to have Jesus released, then he can sort of stick it to the high priests and annoy them for bringing him this issue this early in the morning. But they've managed to outmaneuver Pilate this time. Verse 11, But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Now, think about the situation here. Pilate is in his residence. Maybe he's, you know, you've seen the different cinematic portrayals of this. Maybe he's standing on like a porch looking out and Jesus is there next to him. We don't know exactly what it looks like. But regardless, there's a crowd out here. And it seems like the crowd is becoming increasingly hostile and increasingly demanding what they want. The situation is getting more intense. Look at verses 12 and 13. And Pilate again said to them, I'm sorry, verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? So the people are demanding Barabbas and Pilate says, well, then what do we do with Jesus if we release this other guy? And they cried out again in verse 13, crucify him. So the chants are probably getting louder and Pilate offers one last attempt here in verse 14 to get Jesus out of there. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? I mean, to a certain extent, Pilate understands this and sees what's going on there. He doesn't really care about Jesus. He's not some guy pursuing justice in every situation. But I'm sure he's not thrilled with condemning an innocent man. And he's not thrilled with giving the chief priest this sort of power where they can bring someone to him and stir up the crowd and get what they want to. But I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where a crowd is becoming increasingly hostile and agitated, but it's, it's not a very comfortable situation to be in. When a crowd begins to turn into a mob, then things can go south really, really quickly. Uh, a few years ago, when I was, it was 2015, I was in Nepal on a missions trip there, me and another guy, and... I think I've told you the story, but our flight got canceled, and it was just a huge mess. There's only one international runway in and out of Nepal. So there was just like 70,000 people that were stranded going in and out over a period of two or three days. So we went to the ticket office in the capital city to try to get our flights rebooked. Well, there was hundreds, if not thousands of people waiting outside of this ticket office. And we got there really early in the morning, and you know, it's one of those things where the line forms, but then the line like keeps forming in front of you, you know, and keeps getting wider throughout the morning. And so by lunchtime, I mean, everybody's been standing there for hours. It's hot. We're waiting. People are already stranded. And, you know, it, things are starting to get, people are starting to get agitated. You'd see like one person come out of the office every 30 or 45 minutes with a ticket. And we're all thinking, this is never going to happen. Well, at about noon, a group of guys got really frustrated and they rushed the 
the office. And there was a gate outside of the office and the security guards closed the gate, but the guys climbed up on the gate and started trying to pull the gate down. You know? And there are hundreds of people around and everyone's, certain people are kind of surging forward and you, know, you just got the sense that this thing could go awry really, really quickly. And I'm not sure I want to be standing in the middle of this when police start showing up and trying to bring everything under control and with these guys as agitated as they are. And so you feel out of control when this sort of happens. And Pilate is the center of this. Everyone is chanting and directing their hostility toward him. And so he's standing there. And no doubt he's dealt with this sort of situation before, but I think he probably has the sense that everything could go in a bad direction really, really quickly. And he doesn't want to crush a Jewish crowd with his Roman soldiers. And so, since he probably doesn't care about Jesus all that much or his innocence, he gives in to the crowd. Look at verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, there it is. I mean, that's why this happens. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. So he lets the murderer, the insurrectionist, the revolutionary go free, and his motivation was purely political. Let's Barabbas go free and Jesus is prepared for crucifixion. What do you mean prepared for crucifixion? Look at the rest of the verse. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. It's stated so simply here, having scourged him. It's stated so simply, but let me explain what's going on just a little bit here. Of course, in the Gospels, the physical pain and agony that Jesus went through is not the primary focus. However, it is helpful to understand some of what happened to him physically speaking here. Jesus would have been stripped down and his torso was completely exposed. And then his hands would have been put out in front of him and tied to a ring on the top of a post so that he couldn't go anywhere. And he could either stand up hunched over or kneel down at the post. And then a Roman soldier would take a leather whip with multiple leather ends on it. And on those leather ends would have been metal and chunks of bone that were tied into the leather. And then the the whip would have been swung across his back and the metal would have stuck into his skin. And then they would have ripped it out like that and chunks of skin and flesh would have come out with it. There was no limit on how many times they could do this. It wasn't 39 lashes in this case. It was however much they wanted to. And by the end of it, he's got huge lacerations. His organs, internal organs are probably exposed. His bones are probably exposed. And after all of that, he was delivered over to be crucified. That's just the first step. And they do this so that the crucifixion won't last for days and days and days. They weaken them so that they'll die quicker. So let me remind you after that of the summary of this passage. Jesus, the innocent king, innocent king was unjustly condemned to die so we could go free. So there's a couple elements in this statement that I want to try to think through and apply that we see from this passage. First of all, we talked about injustice at the beginning this morning. And this whole passage 
as you're reading it, makes it very clear that Jesus was completely innocent of any wrongdoing. He was not deserving of his death here. I mean, we already saw in chapter 14, the trial before the Sanhedrin was a complete joke. They're they're starting with the penalty and they're trying to find a charge. They bring false witnesses in front of him. And this just continues that. It's a joke. Pilate's not convinced that Jesus has done anything wrong. And so he asked Jesus about his identity as the king of the Jews. And Jesus is the king of the Jews. This is exactly who he is, the way Pilate states it. You are the king of the Jews. Albeit a question, but still, that is who he is. He's not falsely claimed to be anyone. But Pilate ends up condemning Jesus to death because of the crowd. Political expediency in this case. Now, all of that is so important. It's so important that you and I understand that Jesus was an innocent man who was condemned to die with a great amount of injustice. It's important for our salvation. We cannot be saved unless Jesus is free from sin, unless he's not tainted by any wrongdoing. An unconscious man sinking 30 feet below the surface of a lake cannot rescue himself. And our situation is much worse than being unconscious. We are dead in that lake. We don't, dead people don't rescue themselves. Sinners don't rescue themselves. I'll try to put it this way. Imagine for a moment that you had an employee. You were an employer, and you had an employee who you were giving a task to, right? So you have this job that you want them to do, and uh, they're going to go to a courthouse and pick up some important documents that you need for your company. And um, they have to be picked up within one hour, or else you can't get them anymore. You don't have access to those documents after an hour. I don't know why, but that's the story, so follow with me. So you have to pick up these documents within an hour, and you give this employee your personal vehicle to go pick up you know, the documents, and give him his instructions. This is what you are required to do. And since we live in Michigan, you tell him there's a giant pothole in the road on the way to pick up the documents. Do not drive my car into the pothole. So you've given him a task to do, and you've forbidden him from doing something else. Well, he's a little bit frustrated with you, So he leaves for the job, and he intentionally drives your car into the pothole, blows the tire, breaks the axle on it, and because he has intentionally done that, now he cannot do what you originally asked him to do, which is to pick up those documents. So this employee has specifically, intentionally transgressed your command to avoid the pothole, but by doing that, he has rendered himself incapable of fulfilling your original task that you had given him. He is no longer able to fulfill that task because of his transgression, because the car is damaged. He lacks the ability now. It's not even within him to finish that original task that you gave him, and yet he's still responsible 
for his inability to finish that original task. He can't just say, well, I couldn't get there. Yeah, you couldn't get there because you broke my command. So he's transgressed the command and he's rendered himself unable to complete the task. That is exactly the situation that you and I find ourselves in. We've disobeyed God's commands with intentionality and rebellion, but in doing so, in our father Adam, now we are unable to fulfill God's commands to love him and to love others. And we're unable to fulfill the purpose with which he originally put us on earth. We can't represent him as he intended us to do because of our transgression. So our sin is a failure to do what God has commanded and it's intentional disobedience. Both of those are something we are responsible for. And that, both sides of that, that is why the Gospels belabor the point that Jesus is innocent and is free from sin. And that's why the picture of him presented here is so important for our salvation. Because we have failed so miserably in every way. And in order to be saved from our sin, we need a representative who doesn't disobey and who completes the task that has been required of us as human beings. He perfectly obeys God's law and he never transgressed and broke one of God's commandments. The positive and the negative are there for Jesus Christ. And that's what we need. And that's why this picture of Jesus as innocent and unjustly condemned is so vital for our salvation. And so what's amazing here is the Gospels give us this presentation of Jesus Christ, and then the rest of the New Testament specifically applies this and works it out theologically. You can find this truth that Jesus is innocent and free from sin all over the rest of your New Testament. A couple of examples. 1 Peter 2. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And because he's free from sin, because no deceit was found in his mouth, he himself, verse 24, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? Twofold reason. That we might die to sin. Dying to something means it no longer has power and authority over you. So Jesus bore our sins so that we might die to sin, so that sin would no longer have the authority of us over us and we would not be enslaved to it any longer, and that we would live to righteousness. That now, because he paid the penalty for our sin, because he obeyed and fulfilled God's law, now you and I enabled by his Holy Spirit, can actually obey him and live in a way that honors God and in a way that he originally intended us to live. We can be true human beings as God designed us to be. By his wounds, you have been healed. All of that is done for us. But in order for that to take place, Jesus had to be free from sin. He had to be innocent. 
And then here's the next part of the statement. Because he was innocent, he did not deserve to die. He didn't deserve to die. And that's the point where the injustice of this trial before Pilate comes in. It was a miscarriage of justice for his back to take the scourging and for him to be condemned to die. But if you read this story, what happens because he took the scourging and because Jesus was condemned to die? What happens? Barabbas goes free. A murderer, an insurrectionist, a revolutionary, a wicked man goes free because Jesus was unjustly condemned to die. And it's quite easy there to see the the idea of substitution played out, right? I mean, it's as clear as day there. And that concept of a substitute being necessary for forgiveness and for redemption is prevalent throughout Scripture. I mean, the, the paradigm of redemption in the Old Testament is the Passover. What happens on the night of the Passover? Well, it's not just that Egypt was condemned and they suffered God's judgment. Think about that story. Israel would have suffered God's judgment as well, right? Israel wasn't any different than Egypt in one sense. The only way the Israelites were freed from suffering and freed from their firstborn dying was if a lamb was killed instead. Unless there was a substitute, then each and every one of those Jewish families would have suffered the exact same fate as the Egyptian families did. Same thing would have happened. The death of a lamb was required for them to be free from judgment. And so I think it's entirely appropriate for us to see ourselves in Barabbas here. You don't often identify with the most shady character in a, in a story in the Bible, but maybe we should. I think it's entirely appropriate to see ourselves here. You might not be an insurrectionist or a murderer, but you and I are, are no less in need of a substitute. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so I think this is the heart of the gospel this morning. One of the key elements of the gospel that we say we believe and that we want to proclaim, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Paul explains it this way, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, he was our substitute. Think of this as the crown jewel of the gospel in many ways. And so what you can do with the crown jewel is you can pick it up and you can look at it from a number of different angles and you can see the facets of that crown jewel and you can marvel at what is there. And so think about Jesus's innocent condemnation as a substitute for you and I as really one of the heartbeats, the centers of the gospel. And so then think about in your daily life being able to pick up that truth 
and being able to look at it and marvel at the different facets of that truth and realize that this truth impacts your daily life and my daily life in a whole host of ways that we don't often think about. This gospel truth that we've talked about this morning should be shaping the way we live. There's direct application of this to our lives every single day. These truths ought to shape us and form us. There's this little tiny book that is one of my favorite books of all time. It's called A Gospel Primer, um, P-R-I-M-E-R. We don't use the word primer all that often, but A Gospel Primer. And it's written by a pastor who lives in Southern California. And he said that when he started to understand the way in which the gospel worked itself out in daily life, his walk with Christ was transformed and revolutionized. It changed everything. He wasn't just working really hard now to try to earn God's favor, but he was resting in the work that Christ had done, and he was enjoying and marveling at the center of the gospel in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And he explained it this way. God did not give us his gospel just so we could embrace it and be converted. Actually, he offers it to us every day as a gift that keeps on giving to us everything we need for life and godliness. The wise believer learns this truth early and becomes proficient in extracting available benefits from the gospel each day. We extract these benefits by being absorbed in the gospel, speaking it to ourselves when necessary, and by daring to reckon it true in all we do. It's not just for unbelievers. The, the truths of the gospel are for every single one of us every single day to preach these things to ourselves. So here's my encouragement to us based on Mark 15. Absorb yourself in the gospel. Consider these truths. Think about how they apply to daily life. And then get together with other believers in this church body and talk about how you apply these things to daily life. Speak the truth in love to one another so that you can be sharpened and deepened in your understanding of the gospel. And then go out and live as if these things were true. Because they are. Live as if there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Live as if God's love for you will not fail if you are in Christ because of what he's done. Live as if the grace of God that brings salvation trains us for godliness and changes the way we live and causes us to want to pursue holiness. Live as if these things are true, these beautiful truths around the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we're amazed by what you've done for us. You offered yourself innocent and pure and free from sin as a substitute for us. You obeyed where we could never obey. We had the complete lack of ability to obey. You obeyed perfectly and completely. And now that is applied to us. We have life 
through your condemnation. We are accepted because you were condemned. Help these things to absolutely renew our minds and change the way we think about ourselves, about others, and about the world around us. Thank you for your your goodness to us, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.